This is a Federal News Network podcast. The Biden administration is moving ahead with directives in last year's executive order on tackling climate change with federal procurement. The new federal sustainability plan released at the end of last year tells agencies to harness procurement authority to reach 100 percent carbon free energy at federal facilities by 2030. The plan also sets interim goals every few years until 2050. For the latest, we turn to Federal News Network's Amelia Brust. Amelia, tell us more about this plan. What does it center on federal procurement and what are they trying to do here? So the plan is a result of last year's executive order to achieve a net zero emissions economy by 2050 in order to help limit global average temperature rise to 1.5 degrees Celsius. And by net zero, the Biden administration actually means reducing greenhouse gas emissions to as close to zero as possible and balancing any remaining emissions with an equal amount of removal steps like natural carbon sinks or carbon capture, carbon storage, or direct air capture. And the plan talks about benchmarks to switch federal facilities over to entirely renewable energy, switching federal vehicle fleets over to electric, procuring low-carbon materials and sustainable products, and investing in sustainability programs and a lot of other steps. Uh, Federal Chief Sustainability Officer Andrew Mayock was talking about this on Wednesday. In places like zero emission vehicles, where the federal government has traditionally purchased under 1% of vehicles as zero emission vehicles, we're seeking to scale that up dramatically. And we're seeking to also, of course, provide the infrastructure charging that goes along with that. And so there's places across those circles in the plan's design where we're moving out today so that when we get to those periods of 2030, 2027, it's a climb up a measured slope versus a moment in time that we need need to uh, get to over, over one year. And that's Andrew Mayock, the federal chief sustainability officer, and he mentioned a hill to climb. It's a pretty steep one. How are they going to get all this done, Amelia? So the Council on Environmental Quality, which wrote the plan, lays it all out in sort of incremental goals, like a 50 percent reduction in building emissions by 2032 or switching all light duty vehicles over to electric first and then the whole fleet. And then in the background, they want to have ongoing conversations within agencies about improving people's understanding of the situation of climate change and how to make the supply chain increasingly sustainable. But Mayock says that they tried to meet agencies where they could realistically accomplish these benchmarks. One of the cool things about the way that we've designed the plan, which is a bit of a departure from prior year's plans, is that we've uh, oftentimes it's been a, a straight up goal. We just set a number and ask our agency partners to hit it. During this approach, we've set these broader, longer term goals, but we're engaging agencies where they are and asking them how far they can go on their own, how quickly. And what we're seeing, not surprisingly, is agencies who come back and say 2027 is you know, too late for us. We're going to do all, we're going to trans- transition all of our vehicles by 2025 or 2024. And so Mayock was speaking on Wednesday for what was the first in a series of talks with climate experts 
that the Council on Environmental Quality wants to have uh, this year to engage the federal community and build up Fed's climate literacy, as he calls it. So this week's guest was Catherine Hayhoe, a chief scientist for the Nature Conservancy and a professor at Texas Tech University. And she was talking about how one of the best first ways to spur action is to get people talking about climate change, but to specifically get them talking about it in terms that make sense to them where they are geographically, because she says that builds a feeling of efficacy, as well as a sense of personal investment into the efforts to slow climate change. I was asked when I was in Iowa a little while ago, they said, how do you talk about polar bears in Iowa? And I said, you don't. You talk about corn. You don't talk about what's happening somewhere else. You talk about what's happening where you live. In Texas, I talk about cotton with Jack. In California, I talk about wildfires. Anywhere in the Pacific Northwest or the Northeast or the Midwest, you talk about floods. Big cities, we talk about our health and air pollution and extreme heat. And so, Amelia, what do you talk about from an agency federal government perspective? So Heo says it helps for agencies to start highlighting their own efforts to respond to climate change. For example, the VA hospital in in Boston or military bases that are switching over to renewable energy sources. People in the federal community already get updates about when the General Services Administration, for example, awards federal buildings for being greener or increasing their LED certification. But there are a lot of other less obvious things happening throughout the federal government that Heo says can be projected out to the general population to inspire that efficacy and show evidence that steps can actually be taken. With the federal sustainability plan, there's already stories you can tell. Stories about the Boston healthcare system replacing their fleet, which also cuts air pollution, which also helps people's health. Stories about Air Force bases like Edwards Air Force Base putting in one of the biggest solar PV array projects in the country and creating a thousand jobs too. Stories about the IRS saving money. Who doesn't like to hear about the IRS saving money? Normally they're collecting our money. It's great to hear about them saving money. $31 million of energy savings through improving the efficiency of their buildings. And again, that is the expert on climate change and talking about climate change brought in by the federal, the White House Sustainability Council. Amelia, as you mentioned, there's a series of four of these types of seminars planned throughout the year, I think through the end of the calendar year. Did you get any sense when you were listening of how many feds were on in listening to that webinar? No, they didn't say, but they did get an overwhelming amount of questions from attendees about how they can actually take measures at their agency. And um, if anyone is wondering how they can do that, Mayock recommended, first of all, checking out who your agency's chief sustainability officer is. And it's probably somebody who already is wearing a lot of different hats, but they will have the best insight as to where to begin um, in your office. Well, they've come a long way from the 1970s when people had to be reminded to simply turn the regular old-fashioned incandescent floodlights off in a room, in a conference room when they left it. There used to be little stickers, you know, to turn off the lights. I guess we've come a long way, haven't we? Now we have uh, motion-activated dimmer switches, so that's not really a thing anymore. You bet. Federal News Network's Amelia Brust, thanks so much. Thank you. And check out her story at federalnewsnetwork.com. Still to come, some members of Congress are working to make things more civil, they hope, in a Congress they hope works better. 
This is The Federal Drive with Tom Temin here on Federal News Radio, part of the Federal News Network. Hello and welcome to the Lessons in Leadership podcast. I'm your host, Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA, and today I'm thrilled to be joined by Melissa Bradley, the founder and managing partner at 1863 Ventures, an investment company focused on bridging entrepreneurship and racial equity and accelerating new majority entrepreneurs from high potential to high growth. Additionally, Melissa is co-founder of Venture Back Eureka, a community where small businesses gain unprecedented access to the expertise needed to grow their businesses and has more than 20 years of entrepreneurship, investment, and leadership experience. Melissa, welcome and thank you for being here. My pleasure. Thank you for having me. Who is the first person that you remember looking up to as a leader? And what was it about them that inspired you? So there are actually two people. Um, the first person personally was my mom. Uh, she was a single parent. And what I realized is that she was the leader of our household, but she was also the leader of our community. Um, she was a staunch advocate for children's rights in public schools, making sure that we got a quality education. She was a staunch advocate around rights for renters. Um, We were not in a financial position that we actually ever owned a home, uh, but she made sure that people who lived in various types of housing, we were in regular housing. The people who were in regular housing, public housing, she made sure that their rights were advocated for um, and really just always kind of looked out for, I'll, I'll use air quotes, the little guy, while although we were the little guy. Uh, and then I would say she was a huge advocate of older folks. Um, as part of her job, she worked during the week uh, in a full-time job and then cleaned houses on the weekend, but also took care of elderly folks and a staunch advocate for elderly rights. Um, so that was probably the, the first leader. And then I would say the second leader that really came about professionally was a woman named Crystal, Crystal Gaskins, uh, who actually ran a headhunting temporary firm that I ended up spending about a year at, but quickly realized that was not my calling. But in a world where you are constantly managing the powers that be that want to hire all these people and move people around and the folks who are sometimes in vulnerable positions and obviously seeking a job, she would always manage to treat everyone with the, with the ultimate respect. And part of the business was actually um, managing hotels and getting service workers to show up. And that's a tough job, right, to try to motivate people who barely are getting paid enough under not great conditions. Um, and so she taught me three things. She taught me how to be a motivator and that recognizing leadership is not mandating, but motivating. She taught me that leadership is not just reporting up, but also reflecting and supporting those who may be underneath you from a hierarchical structure. And she also taught me that leadership was not about money, uh, but it was about producing positive outcomes for whoever your customers were. And if you did that, then obviously the money would come. How would you describe your leadership style and how has that developed over the years? I would describe it hashtag work in progress. Um, it, it has evolved over the years, I think, two ways. One, the more people I've been exposed to in leadership positions have certainly helped me pivot and make adjustments. And then certainly as my leadership roles have elevated and probably as the more people I've been responsible for has elevated, uh, you know, certainly being managing partner and founder of 1863 Ventures, we manage a lot of people. We have actually tripled our staff this year. And so we went from three people to oh, actually 
12 people plus and growing. Uh, and we went from a couple hundred members to almost 10,000 members. And that's a big deal. Um, I, so my leadership style has evolved in terms of more people that I have reporting to me. I think it's, I, I focus on autonomy. I focus, I'm, I'm very clear that my role is to help other people be successful. Uh, I do set very clear deadlines. I am try to do a good job of kind of projecting what is the overall mission and vision, what are the KPIs and OKRs that we need to hit. And then I feel like I need to get out the way. I need not be a micromanager. I need to recognize, particularly since COVID, that people have kids, they have lives, they have ways that they know how they perform best. And so we now have people who work for me all over the world. And as long as we made our deliverables, I don't need to know that you're sitting in a cubicle or sitting at your computer from nine to five. Um, And that's because I've been at those nine to five jobs where I literally had nothing to do, but I knew I was told I had to be in the office. Uh, And it just seemed like a complete waste of time. And so I'm really laser focused on outcomes and productivity and advancing the vision and mission and not on What does it look like? Because I think successful work looks different for everyone. And then I would say more externally, as we now have grown to lots of members and we have a social media presence and I talk to people, I'm mindful that the the, probably the most important from an external uh, perspective on my leadership is that I am mindful that I am modeling not just for myself, but particularly for other leaders and particularly black women and certainly gay Black women. Uh, You know, there are not a lot of us. Um, You know, you mentioned that I'm a co-founder of Eureka, so I'm fortunate enough to be in the first 30 or so Black women that have been supported through venture capital, which is a sad statistic, but for a different topic. And so I'm mindful that people are always watching you. And I would say that certainly as a Black woman, people are always watching you, not always for the better and cheering you on, but waiting for you to make a mistake and slip up. And so I'm mindful that when I step into a room or I show up somewhere, I'm not just representing Melissa Bradley and my immediate family. I'm representing all of my members and potentially sending a signal effect of what other people are going to expect as Black women. And the final thing I would say that definitely has evolved since now that I'm over 50 uh, is that I feel a much greater freedom to say what's on my mind um, than I did before. And I, and I do that. I probably said what was on my mind before, but in a way that was reflective of my frustration and anger with the system. And now I say it with the, expect, with the level of calmness and the expectation that it's important that we are honest around what do Black communities experience, and to phrase it in a way not based on anger, but really using data. And so I would say I've consistently been a staunch advocate for Black and Brown communities, but has evolved from being very reactive and saying, well, don't do this and don't do that, to saying, let me explain to you why I think it's important that we take this up and really letting the facts drive the discussion. Some of that probably comes from the fact that I've worked in two presidential administrations, and we all know that that just goes back and forth and often times based on rhetoric and not fact. And having six kids in a world of social media, I think there's something, the, the art of, of conversation based on facts and data has devolved to uh, opinions and pundits. And, and I think that's a challenge around leadership because your job is not, in my mind, to convince people, but to inform people and allow them to make decisions for themselves. I, I saw you on a post uh, with a Washington Post um, uh, interview, and it you were amazing. And it's interesting to listen to you describe what you just said, because I could see all of that reflected in how you responded there. And um, make one other quick uh, comment about as a company grows, WEPA is growing as well. And 
you are so spot on. We have, as, as leaders, we have to let go and trust those people that work for us and empower them to do their job and then let them roll. And that's not always easy. This episode is brought to you by Zelle. Whenever you're sending money through an app or online, it's important to do it safely. Here are a few helpful tips. First, always make sure you know and trust the person you are sending money to. Second, confirm you have entered their contact details correctly. And finally, if you don't trust the person or your recipient is rushing you to send money right away, think twice before sending money through an app or online. Grab a 30-day free trial of Live by Live Plus and you'll get unlimited skips, commercial-free music, and all of the podcasts and live streaming events you can handle. Visit livexlive.com slash podcast one to learn more and start your free trial.